You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 89. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Gretchen Schwarzy. She is a vascular surgeon and has done groundbreaking research on using best and worst case scenarios to help patients and their families make difficult decisions when it comes to challenging patient scenarios. This is an incredibly important topic, and I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode. If you head to bosssurgery.com, you'll hear about two free webinars, Tuesday, June 17th, talking through leaving your job, and July 27th, on thriving despite having complications. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. All right, welcome back. I have a very special guest. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Gretchen Sorzy. She is a vascular surgeon at University of Wisconsin. And I heard about her through a friend of mine who, when we were talking about difficult situations, and we've all been in those difficult situations, we as surgeons are often called to help out in some of the most desperate situations. And we all want what's right for the patient and the family, but it's not always really clear how to communicate that and how to really get people's best wishes across. And so I'm so grateful that you came here to talk about your research and all the best practices so we can all be on the same page with our patients and the family. So Dr. Shorzy, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here. So now take us through a little bit. I know you're a vascular surgeon and I I was looking back at your Kevin MD article and I really love how you said that there were a lot of things you liked about surgery. And when you chose to be a vascular surgeon, you fully understood that you were committing to a career of palliative surgery. And so of course we all know as vascular surgeons, you are called on to take care of the most critically ill, but take us through what led you to this research project that you projects been doing. Yeah. I mean, full disclosure, I went into vascular surgery because I loved carotid endarterectomy and I loved the technical pieces of surgery. And I didn't, if you had asked me when I was a young person, if I really enjoyed the palliative nature of surgery, I probably would have told you, no, I just like fixing things. And I actually think that what I enjoy the most part of my job beyond the technical stuff is trying to think about how to best help people who have lots of chronic illnesses, who who have a fair amount of suffering. And even though I can't necessarily fix their problem, I still have something to offer. And I find that that challenge, um, trying to figure out what's right for them personally, is, is a lot more sustaining than just sort of stomping out the problem. So I, I think I just ended up being lucky. As far as how I got into what I do, so by and large, I study clinician-patient communication, and I started studying it from an ethics perspective. I did the clinical ethics fellowship at McLean, the McLean Center at the University of Chicago, and somebody had asked me after I gave a little talk about something I don't even remember now. They said, Gretchen, why do surgeons have such a hard time withdrawing life-supporting treatments on their post-operative patients? Is it just about their mortality statistics or is it something else? And I was like, huh, that's a really interesting question in part because we think we already know the answer, but the answer didn't really resonate with me. Like, I just don't see surgeons running around with like statistics on their back, sort of 
making a claim as to who they are or how even how like what their performance is. It's like there's got to be something more to it than that. And I interviewed a bunch of surgeons in Wisconsin about advanced care planning and what they would think about a family and a patient who, you know, had a serious complication and the family shows up with an advanced directive that says they don't want to be in the ICU and would they withdraw support at that point. And what we ended up finding was that surgeons had a real strong notion that this was talked about preoperatively, that surgery was more than just the operation. It was the operation plus the postoperative care that came with it, that surgeons have deep notions of error and responsibility that made it feel really emotionally painful when patients were doing poorly postoperatively, and that because they had had this conversation preoperatively, they felt really almost betrayed that, you know, this is what was happening postoperatively. And I was like, wow, that is really different than surgeons having this issue with their mortality statistics. So I really love this ability to have an important question that you could get an answer to by doing the empirical research. And, you know, I didn't know what to do next, but somebody said to me, like, don't you want to know what surgeons say to make them think that we've like developed this contract or some sort of buy-in to surgery plus all the other stuff? I was like, oh, great idea. So I started audio recording conversations between surgeons and patients. And now I have a library of more than 500 conversations between about almost 100 surgeons, older adults, all considering major operations from cabbage to neurosurgery to big cancer operations, vascular procedures. Most of them have multiple comorbidities. But once I turned on that audio recorder, it seemed to me a huge opportunity to think about how we talk to patients and families to recognize that we all do it the same way. We all do it the way that we were taught, which is basically sort of techniques from the 50s and 60s that the bioethicists came up with about informed consent. And we've never really evolved over time or innovated that practice in a way that would help patients and families understand what the experience of surgery was like better and to help them make good decisions. And so, you know, it's curious to me, like as surgeons, we're innovators. That's what we do. Like even little tricks you come up with in the operating room, like whatever that is, we love to innovate. And somehow we're using this like clunky thing that has been around since the fifties and sixties to talk to patients and families. And it's like, it's not that good right? Like it really does often mislead people into going forward with an operation that's just not within their realm of what they can tolerate or what they might hope to achieve from surgery. So that's how I got started. Like once I had the data, it was like, oh, we could do better. And I love your point too, about just recording and looking back and seeing, because we kind of get this idea of like, oh yeah, I mean, you just tell people the risks and benefits and, and everyone does it the same. And, and and there's not really a lot of discussion about it. And there's certainly a hesitation for any of us to record what we do and look back. I mean, yeah. unlike the things like the Monday morning quarterbacks or after the weekend of football, they sit down on Monday and they look at all the videos and, and everything and really critique how they do things to do it better. This is just not one thing that we do. I do remember that as attendings, one of our metrics was to listen to our residents and counsel patients, which was wildly eye-opening for me because I remember listening to one of our chief residents talk about informed consent for a gallbladder surgery. And I was like, are you consenting them for the common bile duct injury? Because that's what it sounded like. (laughs) 
we never know exactly what the message is coming across until we look back. Yes, exactly. And I think like, I think it comes out of this very genuine space. Like we want to be transparent about what we're doing in the operating room. We feel like it's legally important for us to disclose all of these risks and even attach probabilities to it. But when you think about it, like you don't need to know how to do a Whipple to figure out if you want one. And yet when you look at these audio recordings we have, we spend a ton of time in this space describing patients' disease and describing their treatment. And we're pretty good about disclosing risk. And yet patients often move forward with surgery under false pretenses. And we've seen several patients in our data refuse or be hesitant about surgery, even though it was very clearly in their best interest, because they didn't understand what we were trying to accomplish for them. And they were struggling to imagine the experience of surgery. And so I would say for the last 10 years or so, we've really worked hard to think about how can we recraft these conversations that would help surgeons in this space that you're talking about. Like it is really hard when you like show up in the MICU and the patient's been there for a week and a half and they're already really sick. And now everybody in the MICU thinks that the surgeon's gonna come in and save the day. And you think, you know, this perforated viscous is just the last thing in a long line of things that has been really bad for this patient. And I think that oftentimes as surgeons, we feel like we're set up to do something that probably is not something that that the patient and family want. And we only find that out after we've operated. And that feels like super frustrating to be like, you know, I knew it was gonna be like this and somehow we went through it and now you're telling me you're not okay with it, but I told you it was gonna be like this. And I think the problem is like, we're probably not doing as good a job in that conversation before the operation. And what a great concept too, in listening to a lot of people online in these groups that we talk about, it seems almost like a binary thing. Like we're asked to save this person. And so we try, but this, just like you said, that sense of betrayals is fascinating because I do agree. What do you mean? This is what we said was going to happen. And why are you upset now? And the other option is, is something the frustration of like, has anyone talked to this family or the patient about end of life as like, are we really like the end Like, should this be the start of the end of life discussion? And so I've seen both sides of that, that frustration. And how does that translate to how you believe that the informed consent process could be improved? Yeah, well, I have lots of different ideas about how we could improve the informed consent process, but maybe we could talk just a little bit about best case, worst case, and be really clear about where it may be super helpful for surgeons, patients, and families. And so we have some other interventions, which I think work very nicely for just straightforward consent for just about any operation. But I think best case, worst case is unique. And I think it really does apply to this setting that we're talking about, like these patients where you're like, wow, this is a really bad problem. And I'm worried surgery is is maybe not what they're up for. And so when I think about using something like best case, worst case, it's when there's really two reasonable options. And sometimes they're not even reasonable options. We're choosing between the least worst option. Like neither option is great, but I'm really on the fence about what to do. That there's high uncertainty. Like I think some of the problem is that like, well, sometimes people do get better. And even if I'm really pessimistic that this person is not going to get better, 
there may, there's a chance that she could. And so I need to explain that, but also that there's real burdens of treatment, right? Like, it's not just like, if we do this, you'll live. If we don't do this, you'll die, right? It is a much larger conversation than that. So best case, worst case is designed to organize that conversation and to make sure that patients and families can imagine what it would be like to have surgery. And the way it works, it's two things. One is it's a graphic aid, which you can do with a simple pen and paper diagram. And you make two lines and each line represents a treatment option. One is surgery typically. And the other can be something like comfort focused palliative care, but it can be like a different operation or best medical management. And then you put a star at the top of the line. The star represents the best case scenario. And the box at the bottom is the worst case scenario. And an oval you draw somewhere on the line, which is what you would represent as your most likely scenario based on what you know about the patient. But the second thing, more importantly than the graphic aid, is this idea of scenario planning, which is instead of using sort of disarticulated risks like bleeding, infection, stroke, heart attack, death, renal failure, you know, prolonged ventilatory dependence, which don't allow you to actually imagine what it would be like to have surgery. Instead, the idea is to tell a story. Here's what it would look like if things went well. In the best case scenario, we would go to the operating room. We'd probably be there four or five hours. After surgery, I think you'd need to be in the ICU on a ventilator, maybe for a week or a little bit longer. If we're really lucky and you don't have any complications and your kidneys manage to sort of make it through this and not shut down on us, then maybe we can get you out of the ICU and you'd need to be in the hospital for another week or so. Given what I know about you before surgery, that you had a lot of medical problems, including you know, problems with your lungs and arthritis and your older age that just made it just barely making it at home with your family, it's hard for me to imagine that you're going to be able to get back home after this and that you'll need a lot of nursing care, probably in a place like a nursing home. You know, like that is a story about what it means to do well after this surgery, right? And even though I don't know whether this patient is gonna do well or whether this patient is gonna do poorly, I actually have a pretty good idea of what it looks like when things go well. And so then what I wanted to talk about next is like, what is the worst case scenario? Like, well, for me as the surgeon, the worst case scenario is you die in the operating room, but there's actually something worse for patients and families, which is that we operate on them and they go to the ICU after surgery and complication after complication builds up and builds up. And three weeks later, we, you know, work together to decide to withdraw life-supporting treatments on the patient. And so once we've put boundaries around the limits of what is possible between, you know, what we are hoping for when things go well and what we are worried about when things go poorly, we can say, like, given what I know about you, what you know, what is most likely is probably closer to the worst case scenario than we would like. And it seems to me like what we're trying to do is tell plausible stories. I can't predict what is, what's going to happen, but I certainly can tell a story about what it looks like so that they can imagine and say, well, gosh, she was on a ventilator like four months ago and it was the worst thing that ever happened to her. And I just can't imagine that she's gonna be able to tolerate being on a ventilator for this amount of time after surgery, right? And maybe that's not part of your best case scenario story, but it's certainly part of your most likely story. 
now I know how to take care of this patient, right? If we're on a place where this patient is really struggling to get off the vent, we have a good sense of what, you know, what, what their values are, what, how they would judge that condition. Absolutely. And I think telling the story is so helpful. And we had kind of talked about this before we started recording about when we think about complications, you think about the percentage of this complication and the percentage of this one and the percentage of another one, but it's usually not like a a one and done. It's usually like a whole collection of these things. And, you know, telling the story with all of their medical problems as part of it and pulling it all together as, you know, this is what we think is going to happen, the scenario that could potentially happen. It allows them to picture that a little bit more than, you know, sort of getting them potentially confused with statistics that don't necessarily mean anything to them. Yeah, it's very hard to take, you know, sort of a 15% chance of having a myocardial infarction or a 40% chance of being stuck on dialysis and paint a picture about what that looks like. You know, my patients who, you know, struggle with their kidneys postoperatively and get stuck on dialysis, it's not just like they go to dialysis for the rest of their life. It's like they're in the ICU and they need an LTAC and right, like it's thing after thing after thing. And I worry that, you know, when we just describe the hazards of surgery as this like disarticulated list of things that bad things that could happen to you, it's very hard to imagine, like even just, you know, what does the experience of surgery look like when it goes well, recognizing that when we're having these conversations, these patients' lives are going to be different even with surgery and even when surgery goes well. And when they're not prepared for that, it is really hard for them to tolerate it and get through it. And I think this is how we find ourselves in this space of, oh my gosh, this is not okay. You know, postoperatively, this is not okay with them. And you're like, no, I told you about this pre-op. And like, if you listen to what we said, we actually didn't say it, but we said it in a language that meant something to us and was not something that that got translated to patients and families. And I worry that we're trying really hard to provide information, like with statistics, like with listing computations. And there's this lovely medical anthropologist named Sharon Kaufman. And she said, you know, patients don't need more information. They need more interpretation of the information that we have. And I think that that's the challenge that we have is that in order for patients and families to tell us how they feel about certain types of treatments that are really hard to go through, we have to give them those words so that they can say, oh my gosh, that is not okay with me. If I lost my independence or if I can't do these things, like that's not all right. And I think that that's the challenge that we have because we go into the ICU to take care of these patients. And, you know, somebody probably even before we even got there said, well, if you don't have surgery, you're going to die. Yes. You know, like I, I'm, I'm not so sure that that's a really helpful statement without talking about what it looks like to have surgery and what it means to survive. Yes, this reminds me a lot of the conversation that I read in Tulka Wande's Being Mortal, you know, the questions he asked himself, and they check in a little bit. And he's got four questions, and I can only ever remember three. Two of them seem very similar. One is asking the families, what is your understanding of the situation? Which, you know, will also give you an idea of where they're at and, you know, what are their 
goals of care and then what are they willing to give up to get that? And it sounds like that's also checking in with them and, and telling the story, but I love your graphic, which is this best case, worst case, most likely scenario. There's graphics and there's a, a great video. I know that you've seen, has been seen what, 30,000 times? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. When we did our initial study, we didn't know how much the graphic aid was going to be important to people. But the first thing we did was focus groups around the state of Wisconsin with seniors. And they really helped us develop that graphic aid in a way that they felt was helpful to them, not just the way we sort of imagined it. And then when we did a pilot study here at the University of Wisconsin, we would go to families' houses after the patient had been in the hospital with a surgical problem, and unprompted, they would go to some drawer and pull out the graphic aid and say, you know, when we were in the hospital, the surgeon used this, and it really helped us think through what the right thing to do was. In fact, one of the people that we wrote about in one of our papers was a priest who ended up choosing to move forward with comfort-focused palliative care. And his niece went around the country after his death and used the graphic aid to explain to his family members why that was the right choice for him, right? It is a way to sort of make sense of what was happening to him and also gave her the ability to sort of tell the story of like, this is why we did this. Like it didn't make sense to move forward with surgery when it was just going to prolong a life that wasn't valuable to him. And so some of the graphic aid is really sort of allowing people to some, something to hold on to that helps them sort of put the pieces together. I also think, and this happens to patients and families all the time, is that we as surgeons, we go in, we have a pretty detailed conversation and we leave and they turn around and look at the nurse and say, what did they say? And the poor nurse is like stuck in this terrible place where they're like trying to like, you know, sort of repeat the whole thing. And I think that by having a graphic aid where you can write down sort of like, this is what I'm hoping for if things go well, it gets the whole team on the same page about like, what is the outlook for this patient? What does this trajectory look like? So people aren't sort of putting in new information that is confusing to the family or putting other members on the team in a bad spot and trying to be like, oh, I don't know what she was talking about when she was in here, you know? <laughs> when you have a good complication discussion and afterwards something happens, when yeah. the family says, you said this might happen, yes. I understand. Yes. So we've shared the story ahead of time and now they understand where they are in the story yep. and they can follow along much easier. That is spot on. And I do think that a lot of the challenges that we end up in are we've operated on someone and taken away their capacity to talk to them about whether they can tolerate what's going on. So if you tell a story in advance and best case scenario sounds okay for them, it's plausible and it's something they think they can tolerate, it is very reasonable to move forward with surgery for that patient. But they've heard about most likely and they've heard about worst case scenario and they can say to you in advance, like, I'm not OK with that. And so post-operative day three or four, you know, the family can be like, wow, this looks a lot like what you said was most likely. And then we can regroup and say, you know, she really told us ahead of time that this wasn't OK for her. Maybe we should focus on her comfort now. And I know that feels really distressing as a surgeon, but what feels even more distressing is, you know, doing that for three weeks and having all of this conflict between, you know, the families feeling like they need to 
sort of do what's right for the patient, but not having any information about how to do that. And I think it is very reasonable to have tried to understand where the patient is in advance so that we know what to do if things don't go the way we want them postoperatively. And I think this also helps the surgeon too, because mm -hmm. you know, when we get personally, emotionally invested in it, and just like you said, afterwards, it's not about our mortality numbers. It's the idea that we don't want any mortalities. I mean, they forget the graphs or anything like that. But when we understand the story ourselves, we can also check ourselves. And I always joke about complications, asking ourselves, did you agree? Did you sign your own informed consent to do this surgery? <laughs> and this is also checking in that we are realistic about our expectations of what's going to happen with a patient ahead of time. So we can also follow along in our story because it's so easy to get blind when you're in the situation. Yeah. Some people ask me, like, how do you know what should be in that story or how do you know what story to tell? And I don't think anybody expects us to tell the exact story of what's going to happen, but I think the story needs to be plausible. It needs to have a beginning, which usually for us is like, we're going to go operate a middle and an end, right? It needs to have some sort of longer term outlook of where this is going to go. And then there's this idea of plausibility. And I have a friend in San Francisco and he says, is the worst case scenario when a meteor hits the hospital? And you're like, well, yes, that is the worst case scenario. <laughs> That's very bad. That is not plausible, right? So we're not going to mention here in the worst case scenario story, right? And in the same way, like, I'm not sure exactly what the best case scenario is, but I can guarantee you that if this patient needs six hours of surgery today, and they've got lots of chronic comorbidities, they are not going to Starbucks tomorrow, right? That is not plausible. And so even though we might not know exactly what it would take for them to recover, or exactly what their cognitive and functional state in the best case scenario might be, we have some idea about what it's not going to be. We definitely have a real idea of how long it would take to get to an outcome that might be valuable to them. And that's something we can say is part of our plausible story. I also think that as new events occur along the way, we can say like, this is what I'm hoping for now. The best case scenario is different now. And sometimes that's better, right? Like sometimes people just surprise the hell out of you and they liberate from the ventilator in a day when you thought, oh gosh, I thought we'd be here for a week. And sometimes something happens and the best case scenario really actually changes to something that is not as good as what we were hoping for yesterday. And I think it's very reasonable to say like, you know, yesterday he had a stroke. Here's what I'm hoping for now. In the best case scenario, you know, we're in the ICU for more days. And then you tell a story about what it looks like, not just to recover from the surgery, but to cover from the surgery and the subsequent stroke. And like, whether it's a complication beyond a stroke, like whether it's a surgical complication, like using the ability of storytelling to allow them to visualize what we're hoping for now is a really helpful way to sort of be on the same page with them and to understand when it becomes too burdensome for them, like when this is just not okay anymore. And it's a better way, I think, than saying, you know, he's going to do really bad or yeah. he's going to die. And I worry that when we're trying to be honest and we're trying to give them information we think they need about prognosis, but I think when we say things like, I'm worried he's going to die, 
I think what they hear is that I want him to die, or I think he's going to die when it might be better to say like something like, here's what I'm hoping for. If we continue on this course, we can keep him alive for another four or five days and the family can come gather and these kinds of things. And I think like just trying to say like, if we continue this way, this is what it looks like in the best case scenario is a really good way for everybody to be on the same page about what that is and for family members to really get their head around what it is, like you know, what the prognosis is without sort of the kind of language we're used to using. Yes. And I think that the genius of those two parallel pathways that could potentially happen is I think that we've all done the, oh, this is going to be terrible. And then they do great. And they look at us like, what's wrong with you? (laughs) Or, you know, we think, oh, it's going to be good. And then things go south rapidly. By providing these two parallel pathways, we're acknowledging that we don't know, but we do have some idea. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, I I don't know. We don't know. It's like, well, these are our two things and it could be that. And so it gives you a lot of room both for them and for us, because it is distressing when we go there and tell the family they're going to die. And then they go on for do well, well ish. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And it's just so hard to use like probabilistic language to communicate that uncertainty, right? If I say there's a 50% chance of being stuck on a ventilator, well, it seems like, well, then there's a 50% chance of like just being not, not stuck on a ventilator, which means like I'm going home, right? Like it just doesn't communicate the kind of things we need to communicate in the same way that says like, let me tell you what it looks like when things go well. Like, let's imagine that story. And let me show you what it looks like when things don't go well. Like that is a better way to understand that there's real uncertainty than to just say like, there's this one thing, survival or kidney failure or infection or stroke or whatever it is. And we have some numbers to stick around that. And I know that the best case, worst case scenario is when you have two not great options, but you can show two pathways. Now take us through when you're talking about like our thoughts that we need to be neutral when we know that the situation is not good. Yeah. How does that go? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I think best case, worst case is really good when you're on the fence about what to do. Sometimes there's two reasonable treatment options. Sometimes we're deciding between the least worst option. But I actually think that there are many times where we're like, oh, surgery is a really bad idea. It's not that we wouldn't operate under any circumstance, but we are actually thinking like, gosh, this is a bad idea. And if you look at our data, what typically we do as surgeons is we actually don't disclose that we think it's a bad idea. We actually present choices with neutrality. We sort of say like we could operate and then we say, but there's a lot of risk or we could do this other thing. But somehow we pretend as though we don't have a real opinion about what's in the patient's best interest. And then we surreptitiously push people towards the strategy that we think is is best for them. Like, so for example, like, you know, a big aneurysm procedure, like a 75 year old who's got multiple comorbidities and difficult anatomy and is not a good stent graft candidate. Like we'll say like, yeah, you have an aneurysm and I have this operation to fix it but there are a lot of risks and I'm going to really lay the risks on really, really heavy. And it might be better to start that conversation by saying something like, I'm worried that surgery is not a good idea. And um, typically when we think about doing aneurysm surgery, the reason to do aneurysm surgery is to prolong your life. And I think 
the reason that I'm worried surgery is not a good idea is because I don't think it's going to prolong your life and it might even shorten your life. And there are a lot of downsides of surgery. And I want to explain all the downsides of surgery to you, including going through the surgery, major, you know, major things that can change your quality of life. And then this real thing that, you know, the the reason I think surgery is not a good idea is that I don't think we're going to achieve this goal of extending your life by doing surgery, right? Like that's what I'm worried that surgery is not a bad idea, which is totally different than like, I have an operation to fix your aneurysm, but it's really risky. And Mm -hmm. so I think we need to be more transparent about where we're starting from, show our rationale and then say, does my reasoning make sense to you? And, you know, I think a good example of this is like, we do this all the time with patients in the hospital who are actively dying. And we say to them, do you want CPR? As if somehow we are neutral about whether we should be doing CPR (laughs) in someone who is actively dying. And then they say, yes. And they say yes, because they think, why would you offer CPR if it was a bad thing to do, right? Like if it wasn't effective, And it would be far better to start that conversation by saying something like, you know, typically when people are like this, we don't do CPR. And the reason we don't do CPR is it's only going to prolong a dying process. I just need to make sure that's okay with you. And I worry we feel like we have to offer choices and be neutral about these choices so that we can support autonomy. But what we end up doing is we hide our expertise about whether, you know, we think it's a good idea or whether it's actually valuable treatment. And I'm not saying that we should necessarily like just never operate on some of these cases where we're worried it's a bad idea, but I think it's really unfair to patients and families to have a strong expertise, a strong, you know, sort of clinical judgment as a surgeon that this is a bad idea. And then to move forward with that operation when patients and families have not understood that that's where you're coming from. I don't have a problem with doing that operation. I have a problem with hiding that information from people. That seems unfair to me. I think that's a really great point earlier about like when we have like CPR, I'm going to offer this to you, but that's going to be like basically withdrawing it too. You know, it's, it's the way like we're going to, and then I'm going to spend an hour arguing with you about yeah. why you yeah, like when you offered it. <laughs> yeah. Why would, why would I put it out there and then argue for an hour with you about it? Yes. And, and exactly. And we think that we're being very, very clear about how bad of an idea mm-hmm. this is and walk yeah. around going, I can't believe they agreed to that. Yeah. And then we say, oh, and I'm going to break all your ribs. But honestly, if I was dying, please just break all my ribs. If like, if you can get me back to a, a place where that was valuable, right? But the reason we don't do CPR in patients who are actively dying has nothing to do with their ribs, right? It's like, it's it's not gonna achieve anybody's goal because they'll still be actively dying after the CPR if we get them back, right? And that's what doesn't get communicated. Like we're really good at like beating people over the head with risks when we would do better to say, what are we trying to accomplish? And do I think that's something this will help you with? And I worry that like just what you said, we run around, we're like, oh, they wanted everything done. And we kind of blame the family for doing these things. And I worry that part of why we're blaming the family is we haven't been transparent with them about what we think is in their best interest and why maybe surgery isn't a good idea. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do the surgery if we think it isn't a good idea. We can agree to disagree with them. 
but it seems like withholding our expertise in that setting is like making them guess. And it seems really awkward to me, like in the reverse setting, like we would never say to a 40 year old with colon cancer, like the options are colectomy or hospice. Like we would never present that as a choice with neutrality because we're pretty clear about what's in that patient's best interest. And we might push that patient who wanted hospice really hard to convince us that that was better for that patient. I'm not saying I wouldn't let that person do it. I would respect their wishes. But they see, but they need to know that I think they're better off with a colectomy, even if what we end up doing is something that I think is against their best interest, right? Like it's really important that they hear from us about what we think is, you know, the right thing to do. Yes. And I we assume a lot of what they know. Just like your CPR example is perfect because, you know, hey, the, to get them to live, all we have to do is break some ribs. <laughs> Or restart their heart. Yes, or restart their heart and it'll be fine. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, right. And so it's like, it's awkward to me that we have this like very sort of fix it notion conversation, right? Like that the goal of CPR is to restart your heart, right? The goal of CPR is to prolong your life. But if you are actively dying, we're not really going to be able to do that. You're still going to be actively dying, even if we are able to resuscitate you in the moment. And there's just a general cultural conversation about these things too. This this idea that death is optional. Yeah. You know, the and to fight death is what we should be doing. Very similar to the the arguments about fighting cancer, is that to mean that to to die or to have cancer is is to give in or you weren't fighting hard enough or things like that. And there's definitely a narrative cultural culturally that we just are missing the point a little bit. Yeah. And I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I think as surgeons, we often get into this bind where people will say to us something like, isn't there anything else you can do? And the problem with that is like, we can always think of something else we can do, but it's not going to achieve their goals. And so it's hard for us to know how to answer that question. And I think we want to answer it in this like transparent way. Like, yeah, I could do a fourth time redo bypass with PTFE below the knee to a really bad target vessel, but that's not the right answer to their question. And I think that a better answer to a question of, isn't there anything else you could do would be something like, I wish, I wish, right? Like I'm right there with you. I don't want to lose your leg. I don't want you to die. But like, as you just said, like, everybody dies. And there are things that we don't actually have a good solution for. And rather than creating something that, you know, is going to, you know, I can put that bypass in someone, but it's not going to last through the weekend. Really, that's not valuable for them to know that. It's far better to say, I wish. I wish I had something. Right. And I like the idea too, of that loss aversion that we have instead of thinking about what you may be losing, like I'm not going to give you these interventions of saying, this is what we are going to do. We're going to move more towards aligning your values and your goals. We're going to focus on what's important for you. And, you know, we're going to consider everything as a whole in that picture and really, you know, kind of communicating all that, you know, within a story, which, and also not necessarily being neutral if we don't need to be neutral. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the idea we can say things like things are different now, or here's what I'm hoping for now, 
I think oftentimes we hear from patients and families, well, we're hoping for a miracle. And like, I don't, you know, the answer to that is like, don't say, oh yeah, that's really rare. Like if they say they're hoping for a miracle, they already get that it is very rare, like that it's a real long shot. So you're already halfway there with them. And I think the idea of like, you know, what if they say like, we're hoping for a miracle, you could say something like, have you thought about what it's what might happen if a miracle doesn't occur? Right? Like, Ooh, what else can we hope for now? Yeah. And so really just trying to sort of open up the imagination into the sadness of where we are and to say like, yeah, yeah, of course we would hope for a miracle. I would love for your mom to get better. What else are we hoping for? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I think you're right. I mean, they are sort of in the frame of mind to hear about some of those options and tapping into, you know, they're offering some other solutions other than just a miracle that they already know is a long shot is a really great way to go. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I worry that surgeons are often like, we're like at the pinpoint of this problem. Like we are right in the middle of it. And usually the patients like that we get called for in this space, they are already, you know, they have multiple problems and their trajectory has been set long before we show up. But somehow someone has pinned the hopes on them getting better on our procedure. And so it does feel like a real setup to show up and everybody thinks like the surgeon's going to come in and save the day. And who doesn't love to be that person who's going to come in and save the day? But when the writing is on the wall and you're worried that they are hoping for something that is just not possible with your operation, you know, the answer to that is, I wish I would love to provide that for your mom. This sucks. Mm -hmm. Things are different now. Yes. Oh, such amazing points. And you have so much information available. I know we had the best case, most likely worst case toolkit, and I'll put links on that as well. We have some viewpoints that are coming out, hopefully in JAMA surgery. Hopefully I can say that, but yeah. so we have some, some communication tips that are going to come out in JAMA surgery, I hope pretty soon. And I hope they will be bite-sized so that people, you know, just a thousand words that people can read and sort of internalize. There are some wonderful places where they teach communication skills. They tend to be, you know, very skills-based, right? They're really about practicing and getting coaching and really improving your communication skills. So one of the best is called Vital Talk. And I believe Vital Talk is going to try and generate module for training surgeons to do best case, worst case. So that doesn't exist right now but it is hopefully something that's coming in the future. And we're trying to generate some online modules where people can practice, where we give them a patient's case and then practice using the graphic aid. So some of this is like, you're stuck with my alpha versions right now, but I'm hoping there'll be some really high class professional versions that like, I'm not really an educator. I'm really more the investigator and the person who's leading the charge, but I'm not an educator. And I'm hoping that there will be more of that in the future. The other thing is I work with a small group who's working really hard on resident education and trying to think through like, what are the things that residents would really benefit from during their training, much like fundamentals in laparoscopic surgery. You know, our idea would be something like fundamentals in communication for surgery and trying to sort of build that 
so people will will have access to it. I have to tell you, I give grand rounds all over the country and I have recently been embarrassed where like people in the audience are like, what do you do for the residents in Wisconsin? I'm like, nothing. <laughs> like, I have got to change that. So we're working on a curriculum, but it's it's a it's an in-progress thing. I'm I wish I had all of this stuff set up, but I think the fact that surgeons are interested, I think the fact that surgeons are really cognizant of that we do serious illness care like we we do serious illness care and I think that we like to think that people in palliative care do that or oncologists do that but like we are on the front lines of this every day and I think it's really helpful to remember that there are other people who are quite skilled at this and we could borrow some of their skills so that we feel a little happier about the kinds of conversations we're having that when we move forward with surgery, we feel like we're doing it for the right reasons and not because people didn't understand what we were talking about. Yes, such a great point. So Dr. Gretchen Sworsey, I know that that's how I heard about you actually was after like a spectacular grand rounds that you had. So for those of you out there who want you to come for grand rounds, how can they find you? You can just email me. I don't, I'm not cool enough to have, you know, somebody who coordinates my schedule just yet. (laughs) They can email me. It's my last name at surgery.wis.edu. We also have a website called the Patient Preferences Project, and it has several of our interventions there. And then, you know, the American College of Surgeons has been spectacular about trying to bring some of this work to its members. And so I often talk at the quality and safety conference that usually happens in the summer as well as the clinical congress in the fall but it seems yeah yes i know the acs has the the risk calculator which does have a lot Mm -hmm. of statistics there too but it it certainly can be an easy way to go in there and get some graphics especially when you see the bar going this far that uh, helps us tell the story but i agree it's not just statistics it's telling the whole story but the acs does have a lot of resources in that yeah i think the risk calculator as really a clinician facing aid, right? It really does give us a sense of like, wow, is this patient going to be, you know, hard to get through this operation or is this, or am I overlooking some things about how well they'll do? The best way I've seen, you know, using the risk calculator as a, as a patient facing aid is to say someone who you have time with, someone you have time pre-op to say, look, you know, this is where your risk pursue in the red here. But if we get you to stop smoking and do some prehab, we can get you down into the yellow or the green. And so I like it for that. But I think the funny thing about the risk calculator is that like it gets put out there as this like solution to all of these communication problems. And there is no guidance about how to translate those that information into a conversation that will allow us to navigate this with patients and families. And so I think we need to remember that it's really good clinician facing aid and the kinds of things that we need to help us with patients and families is probably something a little different than that. I hear you. To interpret that, right? We want we want to be the interpreters of the risk calculator, not just here, look at the risk calculator. Yes, it, the only time I've used it is a handful of times. Like you see this big red bar, that's very bad. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how I would manage that as a patient or family. Like, is it bad red? Is it like halfway through the red? It's not at the very top. Like it's not a hundred percent. So if it's 85%, is that really bad? You know, like it exactly. just, there's no context for that. And I think exactly. like 
what we need to use that tool is a way to say like, how can I contextualize this for patients and families that they will A, understand where I'm coming from and B, be able to judge whether surgery is worth it for them. Like, can they really put up with all of this stuff and is where they end up at the end actually valuable to them? Because many people would say, gosh, if that's the best you can do, I'm not up for that. Exactly. That's not okay with me. Please yes. don't do that to me. Yes. I want to really avoid operating on those people. That's just assault. Right. Exactly. And I mean, no surgeon wants to do that. And so, and no family wants to go through that. And so, I mean, all of your tips and your research is just so needed. And we really appreciate all that you're doing. And thank you so much for the information. And if you want a spectacular Grand Rounds, I highly recommend Dr. Gretchen Swarzy. And I will have your contact information on the show notes. Super. Thank you so much for having me. I had a wonderful time. Really. I did as well. <laughs> cool. For more information on the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.